Hi, this is Anastasia, president of U.S. Harbors. Welcome to the second episode of our All About the Coast podcast. We're thrilled to be here today talking about that one constant that dramatically impacts all of us who live and work on our coast, the weather. Our guest, Chris Bedford, is one of the most highly regarded coastal and marine meteorologists. His high-stakes, hyper-accurate, boat-specific forecasts have been used by the world's leading sailing teams, including winning teams in nine America's Cup cycles, five Volvo Ocean races, as well as helping U.S. national teams bring in over 17 Olympic medals. Chris has served as the president of the National Council of Industrial Meteorologists, runs his own meteorological consulting service for competitive sailing, and fun fact, was the meteorological editor for the American Heritage Dictionary. Thank you for joining us, Chris. Welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. Always enjoy talking about weather. Everyone does. <laughs> so usually we like to start these podcasts by, by talking a bit about your background and how you even came to be involved in meteorology and particularly meteorology of the type that you do. Yeah, well, um, I I grew up basically fascinated with weather. It was just, I always say that um, I didn't choose meteorology. Meteorology chose me. Um, and I've just kind of always been super interested in it. I also had, um, you know, growing up kind of in the Apollo era, a uh, uh, quite an intense interest in, in space flight and aviation and always thought of myself of becoming a pilot until... I got to be 13 years old and got some rather thick glasses and which kind of <laughs> put, uh, put, the, put the idea of going into the Air Force aside um, at that time anyway. And um, so I really focused on the meteorology. I went to the University of Michigan. I got my degree there. And um, my intention was to become an air traffic controller. Actually, there's a group of meteorologists that work with air traffic controllers and flow control, um, avoiding hazardous weather and making sure, you know, planes, uh, delays are minimized, et cetera. And I was very interested in doing that. And while I, while I was waiting to go to air traffic controller school, a uh, former student of a professor I happened to be working for, um, <coughs> contacted them and said they needed a meteorologist to work for the America's cup down in, uh, Fremantle, Australia. This would have be back in 1986, 1987. So I'm dating myself there. And um, I was going to have some free time until I went to air traffic controller school. And so I said, yeah, I was recommended for the position. And I said, sure, yeah, I'll, I'll do it. And I went to Australia. It was my first job out of school and forecast for uh, a very famous and successful America's Cup sailor named Dennis Connor. And we won the America's Cup. And uh, I've never looked back since then. I've always been working in um, in uh, sailing and different aspects of marine meteorology uh, since since then. So um, it's really was sort of uh, not my exact career path that I envisioned for myself, but uh, that's that's how it all worked out. <laughs> so were you a boater uh, before you got into all of the marine based stuff that you're doing? Yeah, I was not an intense, certainly not at the level that I ended up working at. You know, I grew up sailing on the Great Lakes a bit and um, uh, competing at J24 class in Lake Ontario. And and uh, so I was, uh, you know, somewhat familiar with with uh, sailing and, and 
and boating and, and the sort of specific requirements uh, from a meteorological standpoint that, uh, that they're interested in. But obviously moving to sort of the highest level of, <laughs> of professional sailing right off the bat was, was a steep learning curve. <laughs> and a lot of pressure too, I'm sure. <laughs> Just a bit, yeah. <laughs> wow. Um, so can you give our listeners a sense of the complexities, the variety of data that you have to pull together to make a, a forecast that's coastal or marine? And what's the difference between coastal and marine forecasts and even land-based forecasts? What, what classifies them as being different? Sure. Um, well, I mean, every location has that you're forecasting for has sort of its unique um, characteristics and forecast challenges. Um, you know, if you're forecasting for a wheat field in the middle of Kansas, um, number one, your your interests are a certain set of parameters. Um, you might be interested in temperature and certainly rainfall um, and evaporation. Um, and then when you move to coastal areas, you know, yeah, you're somewhat interested in those things, but you start to become more interested in uh, wind speed and direction and wave state. So depending on your forecast problem, the parameters that you're most interested in are are very different. And then, of course, you have the uniqueness of, of uh, locations, geography, uh, the topography, shape of the coastline, um, all those things, whether you're in mountains or in a valley. So every location has its unique problems. There's sort of assert you know meteorology is a hard science and by that i mean it you know it follows physics and chemistry um and so the rules and the laws that, that govern the movement of the atmosphere are well established they're you know within the normal there's no, there's nothing special we have you know gravity and evaporation and and um and momentum um, you know, the atmosphere is sort of treated as a, as a fluid. It's a gas, but the, the laws of fluid motion apply. So it's a hard science. And uh, so that part of it is, is applicable to any location. Um, but you need to understand the uniqueness of a location um, in order to properly forecast uh, for it. And uh, so the the underlying science whether it's on land or, or at sea is the same um but the problem that you're trying to solve is different and i guess that's the best summary that i can that i can give um for that so when you're doing your forecasts are you how much of the things that are going on in the water um, are taken into consideration and in the typography of the water or the coastline, how, how much of that plays into uh, what you're working on and or impacts what's happening in the atmosphere? Yeah, well, the, the answer is kind of interesting, actually. It depends about how much you know. Um, and that depends upon how well you can um, describe the initial conditions. This is one of the big problems in weather forecasting is in order to forecast the future, we have to know what's happening now. And you look at the evening news and they show you the radar and they can go down to street level and say it's raining heavily at the corner of Center and Main Street. 
um, you know, and it seems like we have a really good handle on what's happening at the atmosphere at any given moment. But the reality is uh, we need to know a lot more than that. Not only do we need to know that it's raining at, this, at, the, at the intersection of Center and Main Street, but we also need to know what the temperature is, what the wind direction is, what the barometric pressure is. We need to know that not only at the surface, but we need to know it at altitudes above. So we need to be able to describe the atmosphere in three dimensions at any given moment. And that's where the problem arises in, in making good forecasts, is that we can't measure what's going on in, you know, in every uh, square meter of the atmosphere all over the world. And the problem is particularly exacerbated um, over the water because you know, observation points are few and far between. Now, you might say, well, yeah, but the ocean is vast and it's open. There aren't any mountains in the middle of it. So the complexity is a little bit is, is easier. And some of that is true. But there are other things that work into it. For instance, the sea surface temperature, the temperature of the underlying water changes in some locations very abruptly, just even out in the middle of the ocean. And that has an impact on it. So the the difficulty in, in forecasting comes from our ability to um, observe or describe the state of the atmosphere um, sort of at the beginning of our forecasts. And there's a lot of assumptions and some guesswork that we have to do to sort of fill in the gaps between what we know and what we don't know. And then also think about particularly forecasting the weather uh, in harbors and bays and coastal locations, there's a sharp interface of a sharp change in the characteristic of the land versus the water. And anywhere there's a sharp uh, change like that, the atmosphere becomes out of balance. So what's happening over the land is different from what's happening over the water. And that makes the interface at the coastline a very a particularly difficult place to forecast for. Um, and, uh, and so we need to know more about what's going on at the coastline in, in, in the initial conditions, as it were, at the moment, in order to predict what's happening in the future. Um, so, you know, forecasting, as I said, out in the middle of the ocean or out in the middle of the, you know, the prairie of North America is one thing. Forecasting at, uh, at you know, the tip of Cape Cod is a completely different thing because of the complexity of, of the uh, changing between land and, and water there. That's fascinating. And it also is pointing to this whole um, concept of sort of plotting for scale. Like if you're making a forecast for a harbor, the scale of that forecast must be very different than you're making forecasts for a bay or in your case for a literal race course. Would that be right? Yeah. Yeah. Ex yeah. Yeah, exactly. Scale comes into it all the time. And, you know, if, if you're familiar with being around bays and harbors, you know that particularly at certain times of the day, um, there can be a huge difference between what's happening inside the harbor versus what's happening just outside the breakwater. Um, and that's another aspect of it. That's the, another dimension that comes in that makes weather forecasting particularly difficult, and that is the dimension of time. 
um, and how the atmosphere behaves, for example, in the uh, transition in the morning between night and day, and then again between day and night, make make it uh, also very very uh, difficult. Um, because here here's a perfect example: water has a very high heat capacity, so regardless of whether the sun is shining on it or not, its temperature remains relatively the same. It might vary a degree or two over the course of a day. Um, and then to, and to warm up, uh, you know, a, a, air, a large area of water surface takes a long time, takes many, many days, weeks, but the land, um, heats and cools very quickly. And so the difference in the land temperature between day and night is quite dramatic. Whereas the water right next to where the land is stays pretty constant. And so that right there creates a... Uh, an imbalance that uh, uh, needs to be considered when you're making making weather forecasts. That's exactly the imbalance that results in a, a sea breeze, for example, during the day where the wind blows onshore from the water to the land, or a land breeze at night where the wind bl- tends to blow from the land out to sea. Um, and so those, you know, that what we call the diurnal uh, variation um, between land and water is, is also needs to be considered. So kind of an esoteric question really, but do you think meteorologists think about time differently than people who aren't meteorologists? <laughs> that is a, that is an esoteric question. And, and, and the answer, the answer is absolutely. Um, uh, I think that, um, well, for number one, um, if you ever want to become a meteorologist, the hours are terrible <laughs> <laughs> because weather doesn't know what time of day it is. I mean, it does because it's different <laughs> whether it's day or night, but there's there's always weather happening, put it that way. Um, but uh, yeah, we do think of time in a different way. And, and I think actually... <clears throat> uh, to, to carry on with your esoteric question is I, I think there's a certain way that meteorologists, good meteorologists think um, that they're able to um, have sort of a multi-dimensional picture in their brain of how the atmosphere is working all the time. And so they have to have that spatially sort of, you know, along the surface and then also vertically through the, through the depth of the atmosphere and then in time. And so they're kind of thinking in multiple dimensions um, all the time, and the time and the time dimension is particularly particularly important. And yes, when you're making a forecast, you're always anticipating, like, okay, sunrise. You know, this is the angle of the sun, so this is our rate of heating. And then at the midday, the sun is right overhead, so our rate of heating is different. And so the so. It, 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 that that sort of time function is is always in the back of your mind, for sure. It's interesting. And how do you feel about the accuracy of the current types of general conditions that most of us get in terms of like the time period that they're covering? Is there anything we should know about how to think about those? We actually opened up a bit of a can of worms there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, 
I do it all the time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that um, definitely knowing um, knowing that understanding the time of day puts a certain understanding of how uh, the expectation of how accurate a forecast might be. I think if you're talking about the middle of the day or the middle of the night, you can think you can say, okay, the forecast might be a little bit more accurate because we're at a point in the sort of daily cycle where things the 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 driving forces of the atmosphere namely the sun um are um are constant but it's in those transition periods you know in the in the late afternoon evening hours or the pre-dawn to dawn hours where weather forecast accuracy certainly suffers um and that's that for sure is is you see that all the time in forecasts is like you know you you'll get up and you'll look at what the wind is doing and you look at the forecast and you go wait a minute and then you realize oh well the sun just came up give it an hour and sure enough by an hour the forecast is correct so there are these transition these sort of natural transition periods where the forecast's performance tends to be less um, and then other times where it, it tends to be a little bit, a little bit better. I just as, as a side story, um, when I was in university, I used to forecast for hot air balloon competitions and you might not think that you could have a hot air balloon competition, but actually they do, uh, you know, there'd be hundreds of balloons literally that would launch and they'd have to drop, a uh, um, uh, something on a target, a beanbag on a target, basically. So it was a competition to see who could get closest. And the way they do this is that the direction of the wind changes with height. And so we would have to forecast what the wind direction um, change would be with height because they would use that to steer to the target. So if they needed to go south, they'd go to one elevation. If they needed to go southwest, they'd go to a different elevation. And one thing about balloon competitions is the balloons launch in the early morning or the late afternoon. Why do they do that? It's because the winds tend to be most favorable at the surface and they're less likely to do, you know, they're less gusty and less likely to do damage or have difficulty taking off or landing. But those are, it's also in those exact transition periods I was just talking about that are extremely difficult to forecast for. Um, and uh, so, so myself, I, that's where I sort of got my, my initiation into, um, sometimes embarrassingly so, um, <laughs> into how difficult it is to predict at, at sunrise and sunset. <laughs> yeah, you get your most difficult clients first, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> um, so what are the things that a, a recreational boater should really take into account when planning their time on the water? I mean, they can look at data, but... What are some tips or tricks that they may not know about um, when looking at some of this data? Well, I think, yeah, that you have to know. I, I think there's two aspects to it. Number one, you have to know what your level of understanding of the weather is. And I think a lot of people, particularly if they uh, um, sail or motor in the same area all the time, um, they have kind of a, you know, an intuitive sense of the weather in their particular area. But if they move to a different location, um, then 
that same knowledge, that local knowledge they have um, in their home harbor is not necessarily going to apply. Mm-hmm. Um, so they need to recognize that. So you, you kind of have to know what your limitations are with respect to understanding the weather. Mm-hmm. Um, the other part of it is that you need to understand what the limitations are of what your uh, what forecasts you're looking at. Now, the primary source, you know, at least in the United States and Canada, um, for forecasts, and the one that you should always check is is the government agency. So that would be Environment Canada. In Canada, be the National Weather Service or NOAA um, here in the United States. They have the primary responsibility of of watches, warnings, advisories. Um, their their um, mission is to protect life and property. So you should, that's, and and they do a darn good job of it, actually. Um, But you also have to understand that if, if their forecast is five to 15 knots for the wind, if you're a sailor, for example, you know, there's a big difference between five knots and 15 knots, (laughs) but from a protection of life and property, it doesn't really matter. Um, it's where what they're really concerned about are these thresholds where advisories or or warnings will kick in. So, for example, uh, the one is the small craft advisory or small craft warning. I mm-hmm. believe they're changing it to, um, and that would be around twenty knots. There's some local uh, leeway in those numbers because they also have to factor in the sea state. So, as the sea state comes up then they will also issue those. So those, um, those sort of thresholds that, they, that the forecast cross, that's really what they're forecasting for. They're not really forecasting for, you know, if it's, if it's southwest, if the forecast is southwest at 10 to 20, but it turns out to be southeast at 5 to 15, they're happy. As far as they're concerned, it was, it was fine. Didn't, they didn't break any thresholds. Uh, for uh, advisories. However, if they forecast southwest 10 to 20 and it turns out to be west at 25, then, you know, that would be considered a forecast bust for them because that the it went over the advisory criteria. So it's, a, it's important to understand when you're listening to, say, NOAA forecasts, that the real emphasis for them is to protect life and property and whether or not they're going to cross any of their uh, advisory or warning criteria. Mm -hmm. So don't use, don't rely on the forecast for sort of, for for sort of general uh, weather. It'll give you, it'll give you a basic idea. Mm -hmm. Certainly if there's going to be thunderstorms, they and they say thunderstorms in the forecast and you want to be aware of that, but uh, you know, don't, use it if they say southwest it's five to 15 it's you know that that's great and that basically means it's it's not going to be hazardous Mm -hmm. that's essentially that's essentially the message you get out of that forecast so that those are the two things one is to understand your own limitations with respect to understanding the weather and the other one is to understand what you're hearing when you're going out and trying to get a public forecast got it so you work for teams that use specific boats 
and those boats are in the water. And I'm wondering how much do you take into account the configurations of their boats when you're doing forecast models? Do you even consider that? Yes, for the levels that I'm operating at with the like professional sailing teams, uh, the boat configuration is everything. Um, and our discussions when I talk to weather forecasts go down to what particular sail they will have up at a particular time. Um, so uh, we we get very much into that. We get very much into if 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 there's a ballasting uh, capability on the boat, or if there's an op an option to change the foils uh, on a boat, like the the dagger boards and the, and rudders and those sorts of things. Um, you know, we'll we'll have those discussions. So yes, uh, in in at my level, it gets very much into. Uh, the configuration of the boat, but also, you know, even for the, the um, forecast that I do for uh, occasionally for cruising uh, boats um, or even power boats, you know, I need to have some understanding of the capability of the boat for a couple of reasons. One, let's say I'm forecasting for a delivery from Oh, I don't know, say Newport to Newport News. Um, I need to know how fast their boat can go uh, in order to, you know, project where it's going to be at any given time to give a forecast. So I do need to know a little bit about the configuration of the boat, the the crew on board, whether, you know, if there's a limitation that uh, they don't want to go over a certain sea state, that that's quite common and that that's smart from a safety standpoint. Um, and the same thing for power boats, you know, power boats are quick if the water's flat and they're slow if the water's rough. And, um, you know, so understanding those limitations as well. So performance of the, of the craft, particularly for offshore, uh, work is is paramount. So can you um, can you talk about one of your most exciting races where you really this was a part of the the whole thing that you had to deal with? Um, well, yeah, I mean, I do a lot of work with around the world race teams, and um, that's something that we do, you know, quite extensively is talk about configuration of the boat. But I recently did a project. Uh, for a maxi trimaran, which is a hundred foot plus uh, trimaran, there were actually uh, a few of them racing um, around the Atlantic. They basically sailed from uh, France down to uh, an island off of Rio, and then down to an island off of Cape Town, and then back up to France. And um, that was an interesting project because most of the time when I'm doing forecasts for racing, I'm not allowed to interact with them once the race has started. So all the work has to happen before. Um, but in the case of the uh, trimarans, we, they were allowed outside assistance. So we could talk to them, you know, en route. And there were points during that race where we uh, were discussing particular clouds um, as they were passing through the doldrums, for example. I'm looking at the clouds on the satellite image. I know their position. I know their speed. I was getting data direct off the boat um, in real time. And, uh, you know, so we could walk, sort of uh, 
sorry, sail them, not walk them, sail them around uh, a particular cloud, for example, or a rain squall. Um, and that, that was, it's very intense work because it's basically 24 seven for however long it takes them to do it. Um, and, uh, you know, they have a, they have a keen interest in the weather, so they're always asking questions. So there's not much downtime, but, but the ability to actually sort of sail the race with them, uh, you know, but not be on the boat, at least be able to eat a, a decent meal and maybe pop out to the gym when they, they were asleep <laughs> um, was, was quite nice. Uh, but uh, uh, it was really, a really great experience. I learned a lot, actually, uh, during that. Just with that constant monitoring and seeing the results of it. Yeah, that's right. And they were able to do things like send pictures from the boat. Um, so they'd see a cloud and they'd send me a picture of it and they'd say, this is, this is off our um, starboard bow by 40 degrees. What does it mean? You know, uh -huh. what's, the, what's the wind going to do? Um, so that was, that was a lot of fun. That does sound fascinating. Um, so, but you said also for the other ones that you have to prepare all the work beforehand. So, you know, how far out are you preparing this? Uh, and then, you know, does it lose accuracy as the race has evolved, say, for even America's Cup? or? Yeah, well, for the, yeah, for the round the world race, you know, they, they sail the race in legs. So the legs can be a couple of days or they can be a few weeks. Mm. Obviously, weather forecasting tends to fall to pieces after <laughs> Uh, five, seven days. Um, I mean, we try to go out longer than that, but realistically it's, you know, sort of the five to seven day time frame is, is about as, as, as far as any meteorologist will go without, um, you know, basically guessing. Um, so the problem there is to make the navigators uh, who are on board, basically their own meteorologists. So there's a lot of in, in years in advance, a lot of training and education that occurs. Um, and, and quite often in those races, the year before the race, we'll sail it virtually. Um, and so in, in the same time frame as the race is going to be sailed the following year, we'll sail the weather that we have. And um, that way they can learn virtually, you know, we're doing it in the computer. Um, but, but this way they learn what the forecast problems are going to be. And then I can walk them through different scenarios and they, and, and through that, they basically learn how to become their own meteorologists, uh, for the race. So that, the, those types of events, that's the, the main problem, uh, events like the America's cup, those are short term or short duration races. Right. And they may only take, 30 to 40 minutes to complete a race. And there, that's what I call now casting. Yeah. Um, basically it's, it's all right. This is the side of the course that's favored. This side has more wind. Um, you know, there's, it's really a very different forecast problem and it really is more, I mean, there, there's, we certainly do modeling and, and things like that, but it really is more of looking up the track and just assessing you know, what the, what the wind is and, and trying to sort it out as how it's going to evolve over the, the, uh, the next 30 to 45 minutes. And, and that means you're watching the wind like a hawk for two or three hours prior to that to understand how it's working on that particular day. 
And do you communicate primarily with the navigator or is there someone else on the boat who's responsible for? Yeah, it depends on the race, but uh, usually, uh, usually the navigator or tactician mm-hmm. uh, would be the primary contact. Um, off, you know, normally the skipper is involved too, because there's a, there, you know, there's a, a it's a group decision mm-hmm. uh, to, to do something. And uh, so those would be the primary people I would, I would be talking to. Everyone else just doesn't want to get wet. <laughs> Although I do remind them it's a water sport. They still don't like to get wet. <laughs> um, do you, in your models that you have, that you work with, have you built in configurations for boat hulls and went the sails and things like that? Or do you do that on a one-by-one basis? Yeah, most of it's very, uh, again, just the level I work at, most of it is very specific. Um, so there's a lot of customization customization that occurs and <laughs> I guess not unsurprisingly there's a lot of competition uh, and no one wants to know what wants anyone else to know what they're doing ah. um, so a lot of the stuff is is built um, exclusively for particular projects or boats mm-hmm. fascinating um, can you talk a bit about the impact of tides and currents on um, some of your forecasts yeah, well, certainly um, currents, uh, global um, large-scale currents, things like the Gulf Stream, the Labrador Current, um, the East Australian Current, um, those those types of sort of boundary currents are extremely important. They're huge uh, in the transport of heat and energy from lower latitudes, the tropics, up to higher latitudes, and they come into play significantly. And uh, also, they tend to, you know, um, have relatively high speeds in them. So there's, you know, the Gulf Stream, for example, two to three knots of current is, is, is not uncommon. And so for a sailboat race, say Newport to Bermuda is a classic example, um, you know, crossing the Gulf Stream current is, is really um, tricky and and, an important thing because you sail in two to three knots of current, it can be either a huge win or a huge loss. So it definitely comes into play. And then of course the energy that the, um, uh, that the current transports needs to be considered just from a, you know, a global meteorological perspective, it it affects the weather on a global scale. Uh, Tides, um, generally don't have a huge impact on on uh on the weather forecast except that when you are looking at um the uh impact of storms in particular and, and water heights uh you know some of my customers are marinas and and um and yacht clubs and they're sensitive to uh changes in the water height and they need to put in certain safety protocols if, if uh, there's going to be a combination of a storm and, and a particularly high tide, for example. Um, so that does, does come into play. But in terms of like changing the weather forecast, tides don't really play a huge, huge role from that perspective. It's more an impact, operational impact perspective. And those are the bigger currents that are affecting it, not so much the smaller microcurrents that you might have closer to the coast? Yeah, in terms of the uh, the local tidal currents, there isn't a whole lot that that uh, they affect in, in terms of the weather. Um, they may have there's some anecdotal evidence that they may have some minor impact to, you know, 
starting sea breezes, dragging the air in um, from offshore. But I think in in the, the scale of things in the atmosphere, um, there it there really isn't a big big factor there. So we don't really consider tides. Um, in terms of how they affect the weather that much, just on the just on the impacts um, in you know in harbors and, and uh, yacht clubs that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. This is all very fascinating. You have such a particular angle on meteorology. Is there anything else that is so unique about what you're doing that most most of us would never even think to ask? I have a saying. I say the that there's a uh, in in weather forecasting, there's a big difference between precision and accuracy. You look at these apps, and they make it all look very precise, but they're not accurate. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And uh, so, you know, you have to go in with that sort of background knowledge that, yes, it's going to make it look like at 3 o'clock the wind is going to be from the south at 11 knots exactly. It certainly looks orderly and and nice, but that we all know that's not how the weather works. It's very – it's – much more complicated than that. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm curious just to know, like, how do you feel about how AI is going to impact forecasting? Yeah, AI is an interesting um, thing. That's, I mean, it's it's actually been around for a little while in different forms in in meteorology. Um, maybe not strictly the form that it is today, but but it has been used in a in a manner for quite some time. Um, its impact, AI's impact is largely geared toward um, um, short-term forecasting. So what's going to happen in the next hour, the next two hours? If there's a rain cell, for example, on the radar, AI can be helpful in projecting the future location of that rain cell. But that rain cell is going to die, and you know they don't last long. Um, so AI is going to has an impact, I think, in the short term forecasting. It also has a an impact in the very long term forecasting, and by that I guess I mean seasonal um, forecasting. At um, you know, is it going to be a cold winter or a warm winter? Is there going to be an El Nino or a La Nina? Um, it def- definitely has an impact in that. Where it its usefulness sort of fades is in sort of the kind of the meat of weather forecasting that a lot of us are most interested in, and that's sort of the six-hour to 72 to 120-hour forecast. So then what's going to happen in six hours to what's going to happen in the next three to five days. And there its impact is is going to be less. And the reason for that is goes back to one of the fundamental problems in meteorology, and that is our inability to um, describe the current state of the atmosphere. AI works upon past history. It has to have a database in order on which to draw. And we can only observe the atmosphere in so much detail. We can never get to the point um, that AI needs to be um, in that particular time frame uh, to be uh, super successful. Um, it certainly can be helpful, but it's not, it's not, again, it's not the answer. <laughs> and then there's this other question and, and challenge of observational points of, mm. of where are the observational points. And do you see there are a lot of changes happening in meteorology in terms of observational data with data gathering? 
Yeah, observations are have definitely gotten a lot better. Um, our ability to use remote sensing, um, particularly from radar and satellites, um, has dramatically improved in the last few decades. The uh, one the uh, observation stations um, there are there's a combination of sort of official stations that NOAA puts in, and then now we crowdsource data. Um, so anyone who has a home weather station can put their information online. You just have to be careful because you don't know if Mrs. McGillicuddy has put her weather station, you know, behind the chicken coop. Um, <laughs> that, and so you don't know that. So you have to be careful about the quality of the data. But um, certainly, it, it, you know, it's better than nothing. Um, but at the same time, we also are at risk by lack of funding. You know, um, particularly, you know, we've become very reliant on a lot of the satellite um, information. Um, but satellite, the lead time for getting a satellite up is, I think, somewhere in the, you know, four to seven years. And getting the funding to that far out is is extremely tenuous. Um, and uh, it's possible we could lose a particular satellite and not have a replacement for it. So um, while our, our uh, observational infrastructure is steadily improving, um, it's not secure. Slightly terrifying. Um, <laughs> <laughs> hey, yeah. so you've got some really exciting stuff coming up. You're preparing for the next America's Cup. Is that mm -hmm. right? Yep. I'm, I'm working with uh, American Magic, which is the team sponsored by the New York Yacht Club. Very exciting. Mm -hmm. And um, hopefully that will come off without any hitches. And you're also preparing for the next Volvo Ocean Race, is that right? Yes, yeah, that was uh, scheduled to take place uh, starting in October of 2021. But due to the you know current uh, situation, they've actually pushed it to 2022, which sounds like we have, gee, in a whole extra year. But I know we'll be rushing to, uh, to get ready for it. Yep. Um, and uh, one other project that I've... I've got going is sort of um, an outgrowth of the training that I do for the, for the Volvo ocean race. It's called uh, Marine weather university, um, which is an online weather school right now. It consists of uh, eight lectures and um, we, I take somewhat of a different tact. I think a lot of times these days you um, take a weather class online and there's so much about it is talking about the online resources and, you know, what resources to look at and that sort of thing. And I take my general philosophy is that, you know, weather is gray and that you have to understand how weather works first before you can go too far into all the data. And that's what Marine University um, talks about. And for example, um, the first lecture is, is all about clouds and, we don't talk about weather models. We don't talk about um, satellite imagery. We don't talk about radar imagery, none of that. It's just basically using the two best instruments you have, and that's your eyes looking outside. And from just looking at, at clouds and being able to identify the type of cloud that you're looking at, you can actually make a reasonable you know, 12 to 24-hour forecast. Um, and that's something that I think that that people don't, because because of all this information that's available 
And it's very complex information. It's not straightforward. I think they forget that meteorology is a sort of an experiential science. And, you know, you have to, <laughs> I keep coming back to this, but you have to get wet once in a while in order to experience the weather. And, and it kind of connects you with the weather. And um, one of the first things I do when I walk out of a building is I look up and look at the sky and I kind of just in my brain make a little little forecast. Now, you might think I, I know what's happening outside because I'm a meteorologist, right? But I'm oftentimes forecasting for other parts of the world and I forget to think about what's happening outside my door. Um, <laughs> um, but I, the first thing I do is I just look up. Or if I do know what the forecast is, I just assess its accuracy by looking up and saying, okay, yep, those clouds are supposed to be here at this time right now. So all is good with the weather forecast. Or sometimes I walk outside and there's something different going on going, oh, no, weather forecast seems like it might be a little bit off today. So kind of taking, taking meteorology down to its, its basics rather than jumping into the, to the morass of, of online and app-based weather, um, you know, getting back to the basic science is what Marine Weather University is all about. Now, we, we do draw it all together but keep referencing back to these, to these basics um, throughout the course. So a little bit different, different approach. Sounds great. I'm going to definitely take a look at it and see, uh, maybe I can, I, I definitely need to take that course actually. <laughs> <laughs> I promise there's only a little bit of math. Okay. All right. <laughs> um, so I'm going to definitely take it out. So is there anything else you'd like to say? Any, anything, uh, any tips or tricks or anything voters should know of, like what they should do before they go out in the morning? Like, nope, because if I say something, someone will listen to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and then they'll tell you. <laughs> That's right. I'm a, I'm a meteorologist. I'm used to being li not listened to. Yeah, and so how <laughs> many, what percentage of the time are you wrong? <laughs> <laughs> Depends or maybe who I should put it the other way. What percentage are you right? <laughs> <laughs> it depends who you ask. I think I'm always right, but I'm I'm in the minority. Um, well, I think your your results speak for themselves. You've definitely been right quite a few times to have these kind of results for your team. So congratulations on that. Thanks. Well, keep in touch and let us know. We definitely want to want to know what your next things are that you're doing, and uh, we'll hopefully be following what what happens with you in these wonderful races coming up in the future. And uh, we'll look forward to hearing more from you. All right, great. Thank you very much. Appreciate the opportunity. Have a good night. Take care. All right. Yep. You too.